Hello, and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I am really psyched that we're back because today I have Brian McTurnan on the podcast. If you don't know Brian, well, you should. He's made some classic, classic punk hardcore metal records with groups like Thrice, Circus Survive, Texas of the Reason, Balance of Composure, Senses Fail, Fireworks, Monine, Strike Anywhere, New End Original, one of my favorites, Snapcase, Hot Water Music, and a ton more. But what we're actually here to talk about today with Brian is he has this fantastic record from his own band, Be Well. The record's called The Weight and the Cost, and it's on Equal Vision Records, and I've been really enjoying it. So we talk a whole bunch about that at the front, and then we talk about some production stuff and his journey with music. He's just a really interesting person, compelling guy who I followed for a long time, and I'm super psyched to have him here. Before we get started, though, I do want to tell you to make sure, if you haven't checked in in a while, my YouTube channel goes in really hard about how you promote a band to go from zero to 10,000 fans. I also talk a ton about how you make great music and production and tons of other things. I put up two videos every week, so I hope you check that out since I've been doing some really fun stuff there. And the YouTube channel is called MuseFormation, and if you go to youtube.com museformation, you can find it there. Okay, here's my interview with Brian. I hope you enjoy it. So you've had a complex career with this. So say somebody's totally straight and normal. How do you explain to them where you're at in your life with music right now? Oh, right now. <laughs> yeah. I have to make it difficult for you for, to start off. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, I feel like I'm back in high school with music because it's like I'm doing in some ways more playing and writing than I am doing. I'm doing a lot of mixing for people. I'm doing a lot less producing, producing right now. So I guess I actually stopped producing producing entirely for like four years. And that was a huge mistake. I wasn't writing, I wasn't producing, wasn't doing anything. So I thought that would be cool. And it turned out that it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this is definitely a road I wanted to go down with you. So because of the coronavirus, I've now not produced a record for six months, which is the first time that's been that way in 25, 26 years. And there's parts of it that I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't realize how burnt out on some of it was. I didn't realize how draining it was. I'm very curious to talk to somebody who's the other side of this that I'm afraid I'm going to be on if I like give up on it. So tell me about the journey. Tell me about how you got here and now you're playing in a band again. Well, I I mean, it's a little complicated in that I want to say maybe around 2010, maybe a little bit before then, kind of like the bottom dropped out a little bit of the music business. And at the time I had like almost a 7,000 square foot building where I had bands living and a lot of overhead. And it was totally great for a long time. But then my expenses were going up. Budgets were coming way down. That I think I could have lived with more. But I feel like with the kind of the onset of streaming really taking over, bands started coming into the studio way before they were ready to make a record. And my role in the projects, I think that a lot of labels were like, oh, these guys are fucking crazy. Let's send them to McTurnan. I could see that, yeah. And like, oh, these guys need song work. Well, the thing is, song work and like not having written your songs is a big difference. And I mean, I don't want to say that it was weird because in that era, I did some of my favorite records, but then there was also a lot of stuff that my daughter was born and I kind of felt like, man, you know better than anyone what you give up in your life to 
be a producer. I mean, it's a lot of stress. The hours are fucking awful. It's really hard to like, I was making a fine living, but it was like, we were constantly going, okay, hopefully this is the bottom. (laughs) And then it's like, I'm up early with my daughter trying to say to bands, oh, could we start maybe at 11? And can we stop maybe at 10? And it's just, it just, it was taking a, a toll. And I also felt disillusioned with, it just didn't feel magical at times to me anymore. It didn't feel like the thing that I was willing to give up so much of myself and my life and my family and things like that for the way that it was. And I thought it could have been a lot of things. I mean, at that point, at that point, probably for almost 20 years, I had been making record after record after record after record. And I mean, the way that I make records is like pour everything I have into them. So it was never just like pushing buttons. What do you think? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that is a thing that people I sometimes don't get, especially when you're younger and you're green to it, is that like when you're really going in and developing a band and working on those songs, it's like there's that meme of like, you know, the edit. So many people take it wrong, but it's like the wife sitting on the couch, like her diary, you know, and she's like, oh, God, what did I do? What did I do to fuck up? Then his diary. God damn, the snare sounds like shit. But the real meme of that is that like you're like, oh, fuck, like this song's not right. Da, 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 da. How am I going to get this? The singer's soothing his voice. What the fuck am I going to do? How am I going to schedule that? I have three records after this. All those things fucking tear you up. Yeah. I take a lot of pride in pouring everything I have into it. So I was at a weird place where I'm like, is it having all this overhead and stress that's so hard? Is it that bands are like, don't really have their shit together and that doesn't feel special anymore? Is it that I'm having a kid? I mean, it was just, there were so many things and I kind of just went, the short version is I kind of overreacted and kind of went nuclear and I sold the building. Fortunately, I didn't sell most of my gear. And I took a job and I kind of thought, okay, this is going to be cool. I'm going to, you know, be like a regular person, like the other dads at the bus stop kind of vibe, you know? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. um, I mean, for a whole lot, a whole lot of reasons, it ended up being... The good thing that came out of it is I proved to myself that I could do that if I wanted to. The bad thing that came out of it is that I realized that I was really even less happy doing that. And the hardest thing to kind of grapple with with all of it was that I just realized that I'm trying to change my job and I'm trying to do all these things because I'm not happy and ultimately maybe I'm just not happy and there's something different that I need need to deal with so it was a weird time for me and like the I took the job and then I just approached it like I approached making records and within six months I was the COO of the company and running (laughs) this you know multi multi million dollar construction company and hiring everybody and deal, deal you know actually I roped Paul Levitt into working there and he's still working there. That's funny. Which is funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had heard that through the grapevine that both of you guys had got into that. And it was like one of those things also that was like really funny because I'd have producer friends be like, I don't know, man, I'm thinking about giving it up. I'm like, well, those guys are doing well. I think there's something to that. Like when you're a great producer, it's a skill that transfers. And like, I guess that's proof. I've heard good things. Yeah. I mean, it does. There's a certain like leadership quality that you have to have and a organization organizational, executive functioning. I mean, there's a lot of things that are required to be, I feel like, a successful producer that just apply to other things in life. And also, just I take a lot of pride in working hard and caring a lot and doing a good job. So that just worked. And unfortunately, I realized a couple things. One, I mean, the whole that 
not just the day-to-day pushing buttons and getting guitar tones. That I could take or leave in some ways, but the community, the having just something to think about and care about and like sink my teeth into all the time and having reasons to be in touch with all these like wonderful people and having things on the horizon. Like those are all the things that I realized like, wow, like I never realized how important that was to me until it was gone. And the other thing that came was the nature of what I was doing was I was driving a lot and I was all by myself a lot. And you kind of have to understand that, like, I started playing music when I was 13. And from that point on, I always had something on the horizon, you know, always had. And then moved out of my parents' house into a group house. And then I was producing records back to back. I had never really been like not around people. And so what really came to the forefront in that time is that a lot of the like mental health things that I had, you know, I grew up in a like kind of a fucked up home life situation. And both my brother and I had like pretty severe depression and mental illness throughout our childhood. And I think that I really buried a lot of that and just poured all that energy into making records. And when that was gone, I mean, that was the thing that was like, holy fuck, like this is here. (laughs) It's been here, but it's really, it had like new fertile ground because the only positive that was coming from the job I had was I was making a lot of money for the first time really ever. (laughs) You know what I mean? And not having to put it into equipment the whole time. Right. Not having to put it into equipment and TT cables and, you know, whatever, whatever <laughs> oh, the fuck you need to, the shit. And I had dropped out of high school and we grew up not poor, but like, you know, tight. And I just kind of always thought like, oh, if I had like a regular job, if I had a regular pay, you know, everything would be fine. And then it's a pretty scary place to get to when you're like, okay, I grew up like I've toured the world. I've produced some of the most important hardcore and punk records that have ever happened. I married my high school sweetheart, had this amazing daughter. I've transitioned to this successful career and I'm still fucking totally miserable. And (laughs) like, there's a certain point in time where you're just like, am I just going to like lay down here and die and just be totally miserable? Or am I going to do do something about it? And fortunately, a couple things all happened at the same time, which was I was getting to a very, very low point and probably in some ways, the darkest place I had ever been personally. And my wife was really saying to me, like, you have to do something different. I don't know what it is, but this is bad. This is not good. And right around that time, Battery, which was like this hardcore band that I sang in when I was a kid, got offered to play this big festival in Europe. And we decided to do it, which looking back, I'm pretty surprised that I did just because I kind of like, I really hadn't played music of my own in 20 years at that point. But I thought like, you know what, fuck it, I'll do it. (laughs) And then out of the blue, I mean, we didn't talk about writing. We didn't talk about anything like that. And out of the blue one day, the guitar player in the band sent me a demo of a song. And I got it at like six o'clock in the morning before I woke my daughter up for school. And literally, I literally said, down and in five minutes I wrote the whole song and it was like first time I had written lyrics in 20 years of my own you know when you're working with bands it's a totally different thing than just like spilling your heart out on a piece of paper and I just like wept I mean like it's a little bit embarrassing to say but it was like just realized in that moment that I wasn't okay that I felt like I was living my life in a way that was going to ultimately hurt my daughter hurt my family I felt like 
if I don't care kind of enough about myself to kind of be honest and get my shit together, I have to for my family. And it ended up that I just decided, like, I just have to get this shit out. And I started writing and literally every I made a commitment to myself that and this was before I left my job, but I just said, I need to do something creative every day, whether it's like writing lyrics, whether it's writing a riff. I like just I need to do this. There's clearly something going on that I'm not able to express otherwise. And it ended up being very cathartic. And like, I mean, I was kind of freaked out by what was coming out of me, but it was so consistent that I just felt like, wow, this is like it's clearly not some of it was you know it's not flattering it's not like looking down and 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 looking at what i'm writing and feeling like how come i feel so alone how come i feel like a failure when i'm legitimately can look at my life and the wonderful people that i know and who i know love me and still feel this way it's like not an okay thing and i just need to keep trying to figure this out and it ended up we did the battery tour it was everything that I needed in my life. It's, it really kind of gave me the roadmap for like the things that I need in order to feel connected to the world. And just, it sounds so stupid, but just waking up and having emails from a booking agent and having art to look at and having dates to approve. I just realized that all of that stuff that just stuff on the horizon is really what was like my anchor throughout my life. And whether it was producing or playing or whole host of things uh, really what i was missing was things to care about and sink my teeth into and like that gave back a little bit and and so that ended up ironically i shared the music that i had been writing with some of the other members of battery and ultimately we decided that it didn't fit in that box so i made the insane decision to start a new band in my <laughs> 40s <laughs> yeah, 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 yes yeah <laughs> And, you know, the funny thing is, at first, Paul Levitt and I were working together, and we initially talked about doing something together. And then he's still mixing, and do, he's doing so much stuff that he didn't become a band member, but he became the, the demo listener. <laughs> you know, my... Yeah, you told this great story, and I should encourage everybody to listen to your podcast with Benny on going off track of him hearing the demo and being like, are you okay, dude? Yeah. The thing is, Paul is like a brother to me. We talk like five times a day, <laughs> every day, forever. And so he was great. And he was he would listen to the demos and give me feedback. And it was like, I kind of like, I needed that at that time. And honestly, on the outset of doing this, really, my only goals with the band were to have a creative outlet and to be able to like play shows and not have it have to be a big deal. The thing about being like a reunited old hardcore band is it's like, it's either the sickest fucking show in the world or it's like an embarrassing disappointment. Yeah, it really is true. I didn't want that. I just wanted to be able to play music, have it be fun, have it not have to have a box it had to fit in. <laughs> I wanted to have a vehicle to be able to express the things that I so desperately needed to get out. And the reality for me is like, music is like the only fucking thing I've ever known. I mean, I, I don't know how to express myself outside of turning knobs and playing a guitar or screaming into a microphone. I mean, uh, that is a new goal that I'm going to work on. <laughs> but it just ended up being like exactly what I needed. And like, I just remember my wife saying to me, like, you have to do this. You seem so much 
I mean, it wasn't always easy, you know, like it's not like getting all this out makes it all go away, but it did take a lot of the air out of the balloon in a sense. And I really just started to feel more connected to the world. And and I just realized like, I can't fucking do something with my life that doesn't mean anything to me. And I just one day just quit my job and said, <laughs> I'm going to make records and I'm going to write songs and I'm going to travel and I'm going to take a shot at being happy. So that fucking rules. So there's like five things I want to unpack. That So do you know this book, Lost Connections from Johan Hari? No. So he has a really interesting thing that like echoes everything you're saying. So the book's on why we're actually depressed, not what Big Pharma tells you, all the things. And he comes to it from a person who is suicidal and a journalist perspective of trying to find the actual answer. Right. So he talks about the thing of like the looking forward to thing. And he talks about all these studies that show like that is one of the keys. But then as well the thing of that when you're not alone with your thoughts and I had super similar to you like I can remember there was like a time like where somebody could be like you have to sleep on a bed of nails for a month or be alone with your thoughts and I would have chose the bed of nails right <laughs> because it's like that thing like I can remember like when I was young my mother got cancer and I just immersed myself in pro tools and didn't think about it. And then right. like maybe like seven years later, like Ross Robinson's like gives me this thing like, you know, you're not dealing with your shit. And then when I was finally alone with my thoughts, I was like, oh my fucking God. And everything became like exactly what you're talking about is like, I'm like, oh fuck, like this job and the workaholism has been to not deal with all this stuff. And I totally did not realize that. that right. I always said it was my pride in my work. And now I'm on the other side of it. Like that. I'm like, oh, I do have a pride in my work, but there was also this other side of it that I was not dealing with anything. I think also when you are a producer, an engineer, like the role that you play in your job is to be in charge <laughs> and yeah. you need to command the respect and of the people you're working with. So I think that for me, for sure, one of the things that was hard was that my whole world was, I don't like to call bands clients, but like, you know, whatever yeah. you want to call them. That's like one of those weird things that people like push into your vocabulary by imagine you as like a punk guy too. Like at first you're like, oh, I can't believe people say that. Like five years later, you're like, I can't believe I say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think that it, especially because I was so young when I was really early, early on producing, I think that I definitely never wanted to let on that I wasn't anything but a hundred percent under control. I think that in fairness to the bands, I think they would have been fine. You know, if I had been more forthcoming about like my own feelings. And one of the most interesting things that's come from like the whole Be Well thing is that one, it's so cool because almost none of the bands I worked with ever saw me play ever so I'm so mild mannered in the studio and like soft spoken it's like shocking for them <laughs> see me like screaming and whatever yeah it was funny when I listened to that podcast with Benny like I had seen Battery at least three times and like I feel like I never it never clicked that that was you right that's so that's like a very funny thing because like as I was saying before I've probably listened to 90% of the records that you've made over the years it's like that funny thing of like yeah I love that battery record i didn't connect that yeah well so i mean the outpouring of like 
messages I've gotten from people that have been like, oh my God, dude, like I'm here. I totally get, or like, dude, of course I fucking knew. It's been really like healing for me just to be like, you know what? I'm going to basically scream the shit that I'm too scared, scared to say. And I really feared very leading up until the songs were finally released. I really felt like people would never fucking understand in a million years. And the craziest thing is so many people have been like, dude, I feel the exact same way, <laughs> you know, like. I have been in the same place and I'm like, so it's been cool. And I mean, I think it speaks to the power of this community as a whole. It's just like people that last or a lot of them are fucking great, great people. And the thing for me is like, as a producer, I've just been fortunate to be around some of the most incredible people you could ever even imagine meeting. And like, it's been very fun to reconnect. It's been really fun to have like people that only saw me as like this, like, you know, busting their their balls yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah. In, in the studio, see me perform and play and hear them like hear songs that I've written, you know, because I wrote a lot with bands and did a lot of pre-production, things like that. But like, you know, Battery, it's like we were like kids. I mean, that stuff was like we recorded those records in like two or three days. Not like so the Be Well record actually is like the first record of my own music in my life that was ever kind of produced the way that I make records with bands or that or if my bands had gone in with you or Steve Evans or somebody. We never did that. I mean, we never like had someone that was like really pushing it. And, you know, that last 15 percent, that last 10 percent, taking it from 90 to 100 oh, yeah. is the hardest thing. And I never got the opportunity to do that with my own music. So to finally get to do that and to have it be so well received is cool. And the, the best thing about it is my daughter, I have a 12 year old daughter and she thinks it's so cool oh that's awesome she like has her be well shirt and like all her <laughs> friends like it and she was in both of the videos and it was like oh nice yeah it's really it's really cute because that could go two ways <laughs> yeah the most interesting thing about it is i think that whatever energy i have when i'm writing mixing just doing my thing i must be like calm or like have a balanced because she's so cute she loves to come and sit in the control room and just read like she'll have headphones on or whatever that's something she just likes to be around me when i'm in that zone i mean it's just it's so fucking cool so that's rad so here's one is so you talked about that it wouldn't fit in the battery box and that you needed to do something different obviously like one of the funniest things that i'm sure you've gone through with this is that it's very hard to take the advice that we give to artists all day right so did you have any thoughts of like what would i do as a producer if i was doing this like how did you get to the thing that like i'm gonna do a new band and this is what it's gonna be <laughs> a couple interesting things happen like basically i think at first i thought it would be battery i think that's what i thought because I loved that we had done this song called My Last Breath and it was really kind of the precursor for what Be Well would come in a lot of ways. But in Battery, the guitar player, Ken Olden, he wrote everything. And I think that ultimately that his idea of how Battery should be would continue to be that. And I think ultimately I have no fucking interest in not writing music myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I wrote a, a ton of this stuff and he just... I think he just didn't, it didn't click with him. And I think it was good. I mean, I think that ultimately you kind of owe it to be honest with people. And I think that when you're later in life and you have a family and you're like giving up different things to do it, you should only do it if you totally fucking love it. So I probably would have 
told myself that it wasn't a good idea <laughs> to start a band. And no, I, I, it was very, like the whole Be Well process was very hard because I kept writing and I kept writing and I kept writing. And like Paul would listen to the demos and he always gave me like really good feedback. And, and then our guitar player, Mike Schleibaum, like always loved everything that I was doing. But I mean, we really couldn't even get people to open the demos when we sent it to them. So that was going to be one of my questions. Like you obviously recorded so many bands, like, how'd you end up with these people in the band? Well, our guitar player, Mike Schleibaum, was in Battery too, and he loved the songs from the beginning. So I think he was like, dude, you need to do this. Like, I almost quit on doing it about a thousand times. And every time really? he'd be like, yeah, he'd be like, dude, it's good. Trust me, it's good. And then finally, one night, he set up us. We couldn't find anybody to jam with. And he set up. Um, that's so weird. I know. <laughs> the thing about it that's so crazy is I can think of maybe 10 or 15 people that I literally sent it to and they just never even fucking opened it. Wow. So he set up a jam session with the, the drummer from Majority Rule his name's Pat and we got together and like demoed out four of the songs one night and it was the best thing that happened because all of a sudden it went from like shitty just guitar riffs with me mumbling over them to like a song with cool drums and then I actually put vocals and then that's when I started to be like wait this is cool like people are fucking stupid (laughs) (laughs) I mean you know you have to kind of trust if you want to be a successful songwriter producer mastering engineer whatever you have to get to a point where you say I'm need to trust my instincts. Oh yeah. And my instinct was, I feel like these songs are good and are important and I don't know what it's going to become, but I need this in my life. And I love writing songs. (laughs) I love having new songs to drive around and listen to. I mean, there's really nothing that like makes my heart beat the way that like having a new demo does, you know, and it just was like, but it was very discouraging to have people be so, I mean, I think that if people had listened to it and said, I don't like it, I would, that would have been harder. Yeah. But I mean, I think that you say, hey, I'm in my forties and I'm starting it, a brand new band and we don't have shit going on. It's hard to oh, yeah. pique people's interest. And so I can't imagine if I tried to send those emails out myself and, you know, like you and I have similar community. And I, you know, it's a funny thing too, is until I heard that Betty interview, I always thought you were way older older than me and then I'm like oh we're about the same age that's crazy I know well the funny thing is I just got started so young that I think and then I have really shied away from I don't want to be a public persona type person which is funny because I'm singing in a band but yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely as a producer I tried to never do interviews I tried to never be in pictures I tried to never be in video I just so what was the reasoning behind that I think that it's hard as a producer to talk about the records without seeming like you're trying to take credit for things that aren't yours in some ways. And I'm in such awe of the artists that I just felt like the story should be them and not me. I also don't like being recognized. I don't like, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but the funny thing about being a producer versus like a band member is that people I don't think would like listen to a Be Well record and think like, oh, I can fucking do that. I'm going to go tell this guy what he should have done differently with that record. <laughs> but but everybody thinks they're a fucking record producer, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like traumatized by people coming up to me. And the funny thing is like, 
You know, I think there's like this thing where people, they want to talk to you, but they don't want to kiss your ass. And they want to like <laughs> have this like a conversation. So it's like, I'd be at a show and somebody would come up, hey man, what's going on? Like, so what was the deal with the snare on that thrice wreck? <laughs> Dude, it, it's so funny. Cause like, that is the number of thing. But then also like, I can think of like, people love to also pit us next against each other. Oh. And it'd always be like a funny thing of like, somebody be like, yo, I fucking hate that sound of the snare of the illusion safety. I'm like, that's my favorite snare drum. I don't know what you're talking about. I love Brian's work. You're not going to get us. Get me to fucking t- trash talk him. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a funny side story here. So I was actually talking. I was at the 930 Club meeting with my chemical romance about doing a record with them. And Buddy Nielsen walks into the backstage room and it's like, yo, what's your beef with Steve Evans? <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm like, uh, no beef. He's like one of my favorite producers. <laughs> in the no, world. Yeah. And he was like, oh, well, I told them they should go with him. <laughs> like, oh, oh thanks. Man. But that sounds one exactly right for Buddy, who we're both friends with. And then oh, two. yeah. I love it. It's so funny because Buddy's one of my favorite people in the world. But yeah. it's just yeah. like, it's really funny how that is. But the other thing is that I fucking hate is when you're a producer, you have this like one hand where these people want to like have this conversation like this awkward conversation. But then the other thing is, if you even say hi to a band, they think you're trying to like work with them. Like yep. you can't be like, dude, that was a great set. Dude, I'm sorry. We're already booked with Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've joked about this, that it like it has made me self-conscious about talking to friends' wives. Because like it did, it did something unconsciously because like you'd get that text like, yo, it was fucked up. You were trying to steal da, 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 da from them. I'm like, yeah, I talked to them about what guitar pedal that was on stage. Uh, right. I know. Right. I don't know. For a whole host of reasons, I just, all of those things coupled with the fact that I just don't really like being out there kind of all over the place. I mean, I think the context of a conversation like this is I'm a lot more comfortable with than like, I don't know. Ultimately, what I realize about being a producer and it may be different for everybody, but 25 years in is that like, I'm really good at what I do, but without great artists, who fucking cares, right? Like, I'm not gonna like sit here and pretend that like, I'm the genius behind Hot Water Music or Strike Anywhere or Thrice. I mean, what I do is I fucking care a lot and I work my ass off and I do the best I can every time. But I am not the reason those bands are amazing. Like, I help them document amazing things in their career, but I'm not going to pretend that, like, they couldn't have, like, gone in with you or Steve or a whole host of Paul, a whole host of amazingly talented people that could make different great records with them. So I don't know. I just never felt quite comfortable. But I mean, I see other producers that are able to do it and it's cool and each to their own. It just was never my thing. You know, it's funny. I I had a realization about this yesterday. So like my life now since COVID got really weird in that I got a job producing a political podcast and now we're like one of the biggest podcasts, like we're top 50 in the world now. And like, it was like a strange thing, but I'm interviewing Adam Scott from Parks and Recreations yesterday and I'm like, oh, I'll ask him about what he thinks his character would be like in the Trump era. And (laughs) he got really uncomfortable about it because he's like, hey, that's not actually my creation. You know, the writers created that character. I'm like, oh my God, that's so weird. Like I never saw the actor as feeling like how I feel about that. I don't own those songs and my shame around it. And I get what you, you know, it's a funny thing of like, I can remember being like, oh wow, I can't believe how little press you do. But then I'd also see the other side of it, like that my friends who were producers who did a lot of press, a lot of the bands wouldn't want 
want to come back to them because they would take too much credit for it. And I, as somebody who's always, I like conversations, I like podcasting, would always go there, but I'd be very careful to like shy away from the like, uh, that's that person's thing. They're the reason that that's the way. But if you want to talk to me about, did it take two weeks or four weeks to make the record? Sure. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think the podcast format, I think is... I feel more comfortable with than the like article pull quote thing because sometimes things out of context oh yeah can come across the wrong way and then almost always it's like name your five favorite records you've ever heard and it's just <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. so so let's actually talk a little bit about the process of how did you go about this record what was the headspace for it for you to record it you said you got rid of that huge studio you had what did you guys do to make the record actually the, I sold that studio I think was. 2014 or 2013 or 14. So then I was at my job. And when I left my job, I ended up a studio in Baltimore was closing that was already built. So I took that over for a year and made a whole bunch of records and kind of it was really fun to have a studio. And that's where we tracked it. Fortunately, I made the very difficult decision in November to give that place up. And it was heartbreaking at the time. But now with COVID, I am so fucking relieved that I did because it was like 4,500 square feet. And what I realized when I kind of like came back to producing records and doing all the stuff is like, I love it, but I can't, I don't want to get back on the hamster wheel of like record after record after record. Like I, I really don't want that lifestyle again. Like I can do a handful of records a year, but I don't want it to be like over and over and over and over. And the really, you can't have a facility like that with that kind of overhead if you don't plan on being there six or seven days a week. And it just ended up being like, you know what, I'm going to kind of set. The funny thing is I was doing a ton of mixing at home anyway, only because I love getting up really early in the morning when my head is really fresh and like I make the best decisions then. So I already had like a setup at home and like I just felt like I only really really have this place because like I like having a studio but we tracked the be well record there and actually like kind of getting back to what you were saying earlier about the producing yourself thing I kind of blew it the first time so we actually tracked the entire record twice oh wow so the first time we tracked it we still hadn't been able to find band members so the guitar player in our band is in darkest hour and the drummer in darkest hour is like he yeah amazing drummer he ended up being like too amazing <laughs> for be well and like it was like too perfect he literally is so on the grid and like hits so every single hit sounds the exact same like everything was like perfect he actually charted the whole record and like sheet read it while he played yeah <laughs> wow. yeah and so that's something for that type of record <laughs> then when the drums are that perfect then it's like you know everything leads to everything else like the bass was too perfect and then the guitars were too perfect and then when I was tracking my vocals I would like sing it and then stop and listen and sing it and stop and listen and it was just like there was no emotion in anything like my vocal performances were bad the drums were like I don't know like I feel like at least fast hardcore stuff it needs to swing a little bit like there's like such a distinction between like that pop punky fast and like 
100%. Parkour, that like shuffle it's got to have. And it just didn't have it. It just felt like nothing to me. Like I would put it on and the demos had been hitting me so hard and the record just didn't feel good. And we were about to go do this battery tour and the drummer from The Explosion, Andrew Black, who's like a lifelong friend of mine, was in town because he was playing drums for battery. And I just said to him, dude, could you come and like play a couple of these songs with me? So he came up and we ended up tracking seven of the songs on the record with him playing. And it was like, this is what it's supposed to feel like. And then we just, we re-recorded those songs. And then our drummer now, what's funny is we had sent him the stuff that we had tracked with Travis Orban, the Darkest Hour drummer. And he was like, I just don't play like that. And then we sent him the stuff we did with Andrew and he's literally, he was like, oh, <laughs> I'm in. Let's let's get together. And he plays so much like Andrew. So like four of the songs on the record is are have Shane, our actual drummer, playing. And the rest of the record is Andrew. And you just can't tell. They literally hit like exactly the same. Their pockets the exact same. It's funny how like that sometimes can happen. Like there's like one of the popular uh, Man Overboard records I did. It's like the funny thing of like what I tell people because no one reads album notes. I'm like, yeah, you know, there's five drummers on that record, right? Yeah. And no one has a clue, but if like they're all playing that style, the certain thing to them, it works. I will never forget the first time we all finally played together and he just started playing and I was like, that's it. He's fucking, he hits, it's Phil's selection, the, his pocket, like all of it just felt like this is how I hear my music sounding. And the other thing is like all the guys in the band are just so fucking cool. So Shane, our drummer and Peter, our guitar player were both in Fairweather and oh, love those records you did with them or that for verse record. Yeah. And then Aaron, our bass player was in Bane and then Mike, our guitar players in Battery and Dark Sour. So they're all like veterans, you know, really, really good taste. Everybody has kids. Everybody's got kind of the same place in their life where they're just like, want to be doing this for all the right reasons. The funny thing is, like, I think all the time about like, there are some real disadvantages about being old as fuck and doing a band. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't really want to be sleeping on like floors and, you know, like things that I just didn't even blink at when I was a kid. But the funny thing that you realize is the advantage is not one fucking person in this band gives shit about money and nobody, nobody is like trying to get huge or has like some weird ulterior motive. Like never been around a group of people that are all so communally focused on just enjoying what we're doing and it's like nobody's talking about the next step and get you know it's just like this is so fucking cool like nobody expected people to care and then they do and you're like wow that's like a added bonus that's fucking rad and it's funny because like you know obviously like a lot of that can exist once you get older that it's not like the thing but it's also awesome when you're doing that and people are taking notice of the record and really enjoying it when we retract the record just to Sum that up. So when we yeah. retract the record, <laughs> that was my follow up question. So when we retract it, it was much more like, dude, we're going to keep it loose. Like, we're just not going to worry about every single thing being perfect. Like, everybody can play enough that a pass or two and a punch or two, and you should be pretty locked in. And we just took a much like none of the drums are edited. Nothing's triggered. Everything's like almost like the way you would have, I would have made a record in like 98 or on t tape in a sense. And then before the grid, before the grid, I fucking hate the grid just, yeah. just for the record. Yeah. I had my era where I embraced it. And now I'm, it's like, there could be nothing I'm less interested in. I mean, the funny thing is like, I don't even like the click to be honest with you. Oh, really? like, I mean, I'll use the click. And the weird thing now, 
is there a lot of drummers that practice with the click? So it's like, but I don't care click or no click. I just don't want drums to sound like a machine. And I want there to be some push and pull. And I feel like the drums, it's like dancing. You know, if you see somebody that's like dancing right on the beat, like right on it, it's not cool. But if someone is like flowing around it, a little head, a little behind, like mm-hmm. th- that does feel good. And then I would say to bands all the time, like they'd be like, oh, that seems like off from the click. Well, the fucking click's not going on the record. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's an amazing thing when you get people who can actually play to play together. You solo the drums and they're pushing and pulling and rushing and whatever. But like when everybody's locked together, it's character. So, I mean, I'd be curious if this is your experience too, but like my experience tends to be that obviously I've had some successful records where I've had to grid a terrible drummer and trigger it to death. But like the majority of the records that have really lasted, I feel like, are the records where like the drummer just did a performance and then we did didn't have to go through all that shit like i always tell people like with one of the records i'm like yeah we did 26 songs that session it took me about two hours to edit all the drums most of the time it was just like yeah same fill but it was played better that time okay go over there it's interesting you say that because i don't know of any record that i've ever been involved with where we did that stuff that anybody cares about now i really do feel that way especially now when everything sounds professional i don't give a fuck about professional like i want anything i'm involved with i want to be able to walk in the room hear it across the room and know exactly what it is and you don't get that by doing it with a formula that every single other person is doing like i've made an effort when i'm talking to bands about production to just be honest with them because some people want that like thing that i don't like and i just i feel like i went through a period of time when i tried to like be that other kind of producer and I'm just not. I like color and character. I like feel and I'm vulnerability and I like want emotion out of the music I'm involved with and like for me every time I go down that road of like quantizing and copying pasting and just doing all that shit that like it just never has that feeling for me that I'm looking for so I'm not saying I don't do it typically for me when I'm editing drums I'm just doing it by ear and I'm not looking at anything like I nudging some or comping something but like that is a fucking last case last ditch thing for me but when we retract the be well record i realized that like my vocals were just like the songs are so personal and emotional and like my vocal performances felt flat to me so i just decided to try and distance like my performance side from like the engineering side and what i would do is i would just lay down four or five takes and not listen back at all. Like just get myself in the right headspace, perform and come back a few days later and comp it then when I wasn't in that emotional kind of headspace. And then if there was like a bit I needed to get again, I'd punch that. But almost everything was from like a pass of this full song. This leads to me to thing that I wanted to ask you and compliment you on is that like one of the hardest things, obviously, especially because you've been in the room perfecting vocals. And when I say perfecting, I mean it from an emotional perspective and then having to do it yourself. One of the things that's so impressive to me on this record is like when I listen to it is that I'm like, oh, every time there's like an imperfection, it's so good for the emotion. Like when your voice strains, it's like absolutely perfect for the 
way that goes. So I wanted to know, like, what was the struggle in, with the vocal? Like, what was your aim? What was the headspace you did to get this really emotionally great vocal? I appreciate that. It's got to be also tough to do that. I mean, this is a follow-up question, but it's got to be tough to do that at our age because you get a little bit more dead as you get older. And I was so impressed with the vocal production and performance. I appreciate that. I mean, I think recording the vocals the first time we did it when I was like, I'm going to sing it and I'm going to listen back and then I'm going to punch the next song. It was crushingly disappointing because I tr- I put so much energy into something that I hated in the end. And then the next time I did it, I allowed myself to feel everything that I was feeling and singing about. And that was really hard for like a very different reason. And I did leave things that were not perfect that felt right to me. There definitely were takes where I didn't crack or I didn't whatever, but I felt like I'd leaned towards the things that felt right rather than like sounded perfect. So the thing I also did the second time we recorded it was I sang like the vocals were like felt like such a weight, like, and I felt like I sang like over the barest tracks and just got it done. And then I was able to really kind of, once the vocals were tracked, I was able to kind of zoom back out and be the producer and like then kind of go in and like not be as so like attached, you know, so like weighted down and just focus on like all the layering and the textures and the color of the record. And I feel like I couldn't have done that if I still had the singing hanging over me. Mm -hmm. Like once I was done with the singing, I was able to like, you know, become a little more impartial the way I would be if I was like actually producing. So Yeah, that's really rad because it feels great. So I assume then after that, you mixed it yourself? Yeah, I did. Which was like, fortunately, Paul Levitt helped me in that, like, I would send him stuff and be like, hey, am I losing my mind? He'd be like, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's my favorite. (laughs) Yeah, actually, the funny thing is Paul built me this API style analog summing mixer. And the Be Well record was the first thing I mixed through that. And it was so fun to use that. And I also love that it was like mixed through something that Paul like kind of designed and built. That's awesome. It's funny because like, you know, you you hit play and obviously I hit play with it knowing it was you, but like, I'm like, oh, this sounds like a Brian McTurnan record. Like, this is awesome. I love (laughs) Brian McTurnan records. This rules. That's very cool. Yeah. It felt like how your, it was a trident you had? Uh, yes. Don't have that anymore, but yes. Well, it still sounded the same because as we all know, it's much more about the ears than what you're mixing through. Yes. Yes. My trident, I miss. Mm, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean. It's a big console to be carrying around. Yeah, 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 yeah. With a lot of repairs. Right. The thing is, I miss mixing on the console, but I also, like, love that, like, for better or worse, like, you can spread the mix out longer and you can, if I get tired, I'm just like, oh, I'm done for today. It's not like, I do miss some of the, I mean, I just remember, like, the old days when bands, like, had to be involved with the mixing in it. Like, okay, you mute the drums. and My favorite. Your ch- channel 23 is the tambourine in the chorus, but it's the guitar lead in the bridge. So yep. <laughs> you need to, like, be in charge of that. And the funny thing is, back then, when the band was there, there and could see what was going into getting the track to where it was, I feel like they were happier 
in some way? Like This is a discussion I've had a lot of times in Everton, and I have had this discussion a lot. Yeah, I mean, I feel like people would leave and they would know it was done. And like Some of it is because it's effortless for them for us to do changes, but then it would require effort for them to do the change with us. Yeah, and I think that that feeling of like there are endless changes, like you can change this forever is probably like some of the shit. I feel like after the first or second round of revisions, things are not getting better and you're just like massaging someone's like OCD. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I really love massaging someone's OCD as a term. (laughs) That's really good. Paul was like helpful. It's so funny because like I credit him on the record as helping with the mix and he'd be like, dude, I didn't help with the mix. I'm like, me being able to send this to you and you being able to say to me, I'm not feeling the bass. Like that might not seem like a big deal to you, but like that is the thing I needed the most. You know what I mean? And you've been a part of records where you've known that that has been some of the big things. Like I say to people all the time, I'm like, man, sometimes that extra person the band brought around was like a really, really instrumental thing in how that record came out. Yeah. He helped a lot in just keeping me kind of like from the problem with having ears that are fairly developed is that you hear everything and then the more you listen, the more you hear it. And just to have someone that I know it loves me, has experience, and we've worked together so much. Who could just say, like, dude, it sounds great. I could just then go, ah, uh, okay, yep. cool. I'm not going to worry about it. Like, I know that Paul knows how important this is, and I trust his ears, and he thinks it sounds great. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, that was a big thing. I say to musicians all the time, especially even, like, non-producers, but just as much as, like, when I talk to a younger producer, that, like, getting your, like, your lifeline and, like, the person that you can trust on a certain subject to, like, get you out of your obsession is like one of the most important things you can have. Yeah. It's so funny because um the Snapcase record I did, Mike Barbiero mixed That's it. right. That's a great sounding record. Yeah. And it was so cool. I just remember like, we're like working on a mix and he's like, let's go bring this to George and see what he thinks. And I'm like, who's George? He's like, George Marino. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So we like hop in a cab with a CDR and go down to Sterling Sound and George is like, I think the kick could be, could hit a little harder. I was like, okay, cool. Because Paul Levitt is my George Marino. Nice, nice. Well, I mean, but it is a super important role. And like the other thing I would say, I know you have close friendships with the people you've worked with. It's like, you know, the friendships you make of those people who you do those records with are like the most important things in your life. And I tell everybody when they're like, oh, well, I need to get a engineer. I'm like, well, I hope you like seeing that room with them. And I hope you want to be friends with them for 20 years. Because all of mine, I'm still friends with 20 years later. Right. Yeah, for sure. So let me ask you a, a few questions that I think would obviously there's gonna be a lot of people listening to this that were interested in your productions i'd love to ask you a few things about you as a producer what's something people have gotten wrong about you over the years about your producing uh well (laughs) i love that sound to start can i get a list (laughs) i think one of the funniest things is that the word on the street is that i'm an asshole and i'm sure i have my moments but i think that if you like polled my like my actual like band band people that i've been working with forever I don't think that. Would no, be I, 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 if you think of it too, everybody talks the shit about other people because they love to think that that's all we want to hear is the currency. I never heard that you were an asshole. Well, it's pretty funny because it's like.
like there's all these like stories. Oh, I make people cry. Oh, uh-huh. I send people to singing lessons. Oh, blah yeah, blah blah. Yeah, and yeah. fire fire the drummer type stuff. Yeah, which is literally I think that in terms of like people that have made records for a very long time, I think that uh, that's only happened. I've only had to like bring in a, another drummer twice ever. Yeah, I think it's about the same for me out of hundreds of records. And the thing is, it's literally the last. I will do everything I can to have the band members be involved unless there is in both scenarios where that happened it needed to happen it was the right thing for the band so like one of the funniest things is like i've heard so many people didn't want to record with me because i sent chuck reagan from hot water music to take singing lessons did you actually do that yeah but not because he couldn't sing in tune it was because he was going so hard that he couldn't get the reverse without Ah. singing and the funny thing about that is if you ask him he'll tell you that it was the best thing anybody ever did for him because he learned how to warm up. He learned that you can't drink wine for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a crucial lesson. I'm just joking. (laughs) It was not like I threw him out of the studio and said, don't come. I mean, it was like the dude was like struggling to get through a song and was like, you know, like all of us came up in like punk and hardcore and then the, the writing evolves and then what you're trying to do with your voice changes and like it's not good to be blowing your voice out halfway through a verse. But are you going to say, just sing lighter and not pour your heart into it? That's not a solution either. So the decision was, we need this emotion. We need to be able to get that without you destroying your voice forever. So it still comes up like all the time. Actually, the funny thing is be well played with Hot Water Music in Boston. And one of the members of another band that was playing, one guy was like, oh, we always want to record with you. And the other guy was like, I didn't. I heard that you sent Chuck to text. <laughs> You're like, God damn it. I was like, well, he's in the other room if you want to ask him. <laughs> you know. But then I think about it, like, we went on to make like three or four more records together after Yeah, that. I was like, going to say, you did a lot of work with them. Yeah. And they're still like, I still talk to them like all the time. I mean, it's just a funny, it's a funny thing where like, I will be totally honest. I am hard on people. I push people and I don't see my job as a producer to be everybody's friend. I do see my job as knowing what people are capable of and not giving up until they get there. And that isn't always easy. No. And sometimes, actually, if you'd listen to Beltsville Crucible on the, oh, the Rice, Rice Record, Record yeah. Dustin says, true friends stab you in the front. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that was because we pushed each other and bands pushed me. Bands expect the best out of me. I expect the best out of them. I won't say that there haven't been tense moments. I won't say I haven't done and said things that I regret, but I will say that I take a lot of pride in knowing that like, I don't give up on people. I don't give up on the records. And if I feel like it can be better, if I feel like you're phoning it in, I feel like you haven't said what you actually mean to say with the lyrics, I'm going to say it. And like, I just can't imagine wanting to work with somebody that wouldn't. Well, you know, I think the funniest thing about this is like, when people ask me like about great production, I'm like, well, what makes a great producer? And I put you in this is that you have a consistency of work where the worst person who shows up, you still get it to a level that works. And, you know, like I always would cite Jay Robbins as like the perfect example is I've never heard Jay not make a band so much better and have it 
work so well after God knows how many records of his I've heard. And the funny thing about that, though, is that involves sometimes breaking a few eggs and you don't just get lucky. You know, it was like a funny thing is I had heard from people that you didn't get very involved in the songwriting and then seeing your songs here and then hearing you talk on Benny's podcast. I was like, oh, no, you did what I always thought you did. But then what you forget is that what bands say he doesn't get involved in the song, it means you didn't turn into John Feldman and rewrite the whole song. Well, it's funny you say that because I feel like I probably get more involved with songwriting than most people. But my approach to it isn't to write people's songs for them. It's to try and bring it out of them. So, and every situation is different. Every band needs something different. Like some people need curation. Some people need a songwriting partners. As a producer, you have to be able to wear part of your job is to know what is needed in the thing and not go, oh, I'm this kind of producer that is, and then just do that to everybody. Because like, I'll give you an example. When I was doing the Turnstile Nonstop Feeling record, okay? I was like, my instinct, my personal songwriting instinct was, this is kind of weird to have like verse, chorus, three minutes of mosh, right? (laughs) (laughs) I understand your feeling here. (laughs) But then I was also like, These are like some of the smartest fucking dudes I have ever known who have a better sense of like who they are as a band and what people that love their band love about their band. And I am going to trust their vision for this record and not try and turn this into what I would have it be if it were my record. And that happened at several points along the road in making that record. So like there was the pre-production phase where I'd be like, you sure we don't want to bring this part back? And they'd be like, no, it's fucking cool like that. And I'm like, okay, like I trust these dudes. And then when I sent them the first mix, I thought it sounded so fucking good. Like to this day, it came up on a hard drive. The other day I was like looking for something and it was like so punchy and so in your like I like loved how it sounded and they were like it's not weird enough (laughs) (laughs) that's a hell of a comment to the point that I actually said to like I had a little bit of a freak out and was like maybe I'm the wrong person maybe you should get someone else and they're and they're like no 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 we'll get there and so like it's a fucking crazy sounding record like honestly until I heard that Benny podcast I didn't know you did that record because I wouldn't have thought that was you yeah well it's crazy sounding record and it's fucking perfect it's a great record and it's a head turner right and they were fucking right and i did my job as a producer by trusting the artist's vision right didn't turn it into a brian mcturnan record i kept it as a turnstile record and it's a record you walk in the room you hear it across the room you fucking know exactly what it is and it then also opened them up to be able to do whatever the fuck they want to do you know like they're a band on their own terms and it's i feel like had i shoved them into my box that i kind of just my personal taste would have maybe led it into i don't think it would have been as cool and i'm comfortable saying that <laughs> you know what i mean like totally it doesn't need to be my idea it doesn't need to be how i would write it like that isn't my job my job is to understand and the band and their vision and to know if their vision it pushes it far enough or if their vision pushes it too far but like they knew and i trusted their instincts and they were right so that's awesome what's the musical bane of your existence the musical bane of my existence i don't know <laughs> okay i feel like the pro tools era of like super auto-tuned super triggered super processed it just doesn't do anything for me and i think that like we're living in an era of people wanting to sound like other 
people instead of like wanting to sound like themselves. And I think that producers want to do the same thing. Like I just cannot, the idea of like sounds on my record being on someone else's record just bothers me on a level like I can't explain. It's kind of like the sameness of it all, I think is sad in some ways. And I mean, I like think it's so cool that there's so many ways for people to like fix things and make things that don't sound good sound good and all that. And I just think I sometimes worry that like with some of the younger people that they're not learning how to make things sound good from the beginning. Yes, well, that's definitely true. And I think that ultimately like... The stuff I get to mix from people is so poorly recorded in a way that just never really existed early on. I mean, 20 years ago, like, if you didn't know how to record stuff well, you couldn't be a recording person, right? Like, that wasn't a thing. Like, if you couldn't play the drums, you couldn't be the drummer in a great band. Like, now it's kind of like, oh, well, I don't need to know how to record the drums because I've got the Jesse Cannon trigger packer. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't need to know how to, like, play the drums because they're all going to get quantized. I don't need to know how to hit a rim shot because it's going to get triggered anyway. Like there are things that are just like, I feel like there will be ripple effects for a very long time. You know, what's interesting though. So here's my theory on this. When you and I were young in like, let's call it the, I always use bleed American as the turning point of like when things got a little bit more intense in our world. If you just weren't good performers, it usually did not work out for you. Sure, there's exceptions. But I think now we see that the people who really lean into performances do get more rewarded than the people who just use the splice pack, as they say. And so I was working at Atlantic Records for until COVID. It was very interesting to me to see that there was a very strong correlation with the people who went the extra mile on performances really were the difference between who got rewarded with listens and who didn't much more than the like major label machine we'd hear about. And you know, it's like kind of funny to me. Like there was part of me that even like when I was listening to your vocal, I'm like on the record, I'm like, Oh, you know, like this character and uniqueness, like sure. You may not have the streams of like some metal band where the guy did it all in front of his computer. Sure. There's gonna be anomalies like that, but I do strongly, strongly believe still that knowing how to get a guitarist to play, that stuff and all that stuff does more commonly get rewarded than the person who's just doing very generic stuff. Just as when we were young, the band that couldn't really play usually didn't get very rewarded. Right. Well, I think that one of the benefits of having done this for so long is that I can look back and say what things still matter and kind of approach producing a record with an understanding that someone is very possibly could still care about this 25 years from now. You know, like I I mean, I just went and did a battery tour on a record I recorded when I was 17 and people were showing up in the fucking shirt they bought 25 years earlier and still care. So I think one of the hardest things in this environment where it's like, hey, you can't even just like looking for streams and playlists and constantly needing more content is I think that you lose the thread of like this thing that we're doing is going to last forever. Like you have to kind of be able to zoom out and understand that like every little thing does matter. And the actually it's funny, Matthew, he's like our project manager at Equal Vision. And he always says, it's not a dollar, it's a hundred pennies, you know? And I think that that's how 
producing and mixing and making records. You have to look at it. Like every little thing does add up to the sum total of all of it. And I think that people often can get so kind of caught up in wanting new content and wanting it to be perfect and wanting it to be out and wanting it to be competitive, wanting it to be loud, and they kind of lose the thread. That's not, none of that fucking matters. It might matter for like half a second, but like what really sustains is the real and authenticity and like performance and passion and heart and soul and like just feel like I worry that I'm not saying like we have it and other people don't. I'm just saying I see younger bands not sometimes even when they're with me, like not see the big picture, not see the long term, not see how this fits in. Like music is like it's such a big part of like people's lives. Like I can listen to shit that I listened to when I was like a kid and I can smell yeah. what it smelled <laughs> like when I listened to it. I remember like putting the Gorilla Biscuits record on for the first <laughs> time and the way my heart felt like I remember going to the record store and when I was in seventh grade and the fucking guy being like, we got this new record, but I'm not allowed to play it in the store. You Let's go to my car. And he played me NWA. And it was like, <laughs> that's awesome. It felt dangerous and raw. And like, we couldn't even listen to it in the store. You know, like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like when you turn it into like this assembly line and math equation and a computer program that's just making it all right, I just worry that sometimes you lose some of that special. I'm convinced that that, that is a lot of it. I mean, the nice thing now that I think is like a good thing is that there's now so many different plugins in virtual instruments that that's my only hope of this not being the end of the world with that stuff but I do think that the thought and the effort is really where it makes a difference I think things always swing a little bit too you know what I mean like I know I know for sure that like a lot of the producers that I am friends with are really like I want to like get away from some of that shit and I always think all the time with like the grid editing and all the like the like hyper triggered and hyper tuned and all that like people used to think that like wood paneling looked awesome you know what i mean like <laughs> and i don't think like in the 80s when they were like had like a static single hit trigger that people didn't realize that that was like corny and like i don't know my thing with music just in general and production is like i always <laughs> i always think of it like cooking where like you go to the like best Italian restaurant and it's like your tomato sauce is like tomatoes, garlic, olive oil, and basil and salt, right? It's so fucking simple. And then you go to buy pasta sauce in the store and there's like 50,000 things to get it in it. And then you realize like production's kind of the same thing. Like if you have to have every single track have 50 plugins on it to make it sound acceptable, it probably should have been tracked different. To yeah, yeah, with, yeah, you know, yeah. That's for sure. And it's so funny because I, I also think that with like mastering and I would tell mastering engineers all the time, like George Marino would master a record for me and he would just so gently bring out the things that needed to come out. And he wasn't like trying to like put his fingerprints all over it. He was trying to like realize the vision of the project. And then you have all these like, I'd send my shit to other people and it would come back like remixed, you know? And it's kind of like, I'm paying five times as much for someone just to not fuck with it. 
<laughs> I use plugins. I edit shit. It's not like I'm like this purist that I'm like, whatever. I just think it's gone too far in one direction. And more, my biggest concern is more all the like templates and the systems and like the, here's my assembly line. It works every time. And it does. And in full disclosure, if I had more of an assembly line approach, I think I would have less records living in the world that I was disappointed in the audio of, the sonics of, but I'd have way fucking less home runs, right? And ultimately, I'm not looking for bass hits. I'm not looking for like safety. I want to swing for the fences. And if it ends up being that like, I feel like you're not going to get sonic masterpieces if you're not constantly pushing it and trying new things and taking risks and trying to adapt your approach to the band itself. Like there are some producers where it's like, this is going to sound like a, a whoever record. I actually don't want that. I want it to sound like a Polar Bear Club record or a Balance and Composure record or a Strike Anywhere record. And like, I want the bands to dictate the way that it sounds with their vision and not have it be the Brian McTurney assembly line. Here's my plug-in. Here are my triggers. This is what we do. We do it the same every time. And, and with that, you get your highs and lows because you're taking risks and you're not just playing it safe every time. But I'll take that every day. And bands should know that when they come in with me, like we're going to try and make something unique. And with that comes some risk. A risk that I think is rewarded more often, but most people don't have the courage to take. So I can look back at my career and I can say the records that matter are the ones that the process catered to the artist, not my ego. <laughs> and I also take pride in that the records are different. And I use this example all the time. And I say this to young producers all the time. Like, you want to have your systems? Well, like, what happens if the cure comes in? Like, you can't fucking trigger the cure with the Kurt Blue <laughs> slate pack. You know what I mean? Like, what is it that makes a record special is not it being like safe and professional sounding. Like, it's identifying what it is about the band that's special, right? Identifying the areas where they need to work and identifying the areas that are strong and finding a way to have it all kind of coalesce together. And like... I don't know. It's like, I just think all the time, like if you took like, I think about like the Rage Against the Machine records they recorded in the practice space with Brendan O'Brien, like you fucking take that shit and Kemper the guitars and trigger the drums and, you know, copy and paste the vocals. And you think those records would have been, I mean, they, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, those are some of the most important records that were ever made. And it's so funny because like everybody acknowledges that, but then everybody makes records in the total <laughs> fucking opposite way. That's a great point. Yeah. So I don't know, like, I'm just not into it. I mean, I've tried it all. I've done it all. I've tried and ultimately it doesn't work for me. It doesn't inspire me. And I won home run every time that doesn't always work but that's part of the magic of it too like are you just making something like is the record just another kind of step in the process like to me the record's everything the record is like the thing that lives forever the record is the thing that makes it worth like giving up time with your family and like giving up your weekends and sleeping on floors and fucking being broke like that's the magic it's not like streams and playlists and hype and bullshit like the thing that lives on forever is the music and i feel like 
if you go into it with this assembly line approach where you're not like catering the process to the artist, you're cheating the artist of ever becoming Rage Against Machine or Saves the Day or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, I'm 100% with you. I'm so fucking thankful that all those records that Steve made that back in the day that inspired me to want to do this with my life have so much fucking character because you couldn't do all this stupid shit. And like, even sometimes it bothers me like how good my ears get. Like I listen to like Sweet Child of Mine. I'm like, oh, the bass is really sharp. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know. I've joked for years. Like when everybody's like, what do you listen to? I'm like, I listen to a lot of punk because I can listen to it usually on a laptop and then it won't bother me. All the things. If I'm on my good headphones, I pretty much only listen to pop because it's the only thing that won't drive me fucking insane the whole time. Right. And balancing that is interesting. And it's funny because I met do you know Seymour Stein? Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think he was like at Warner Brothers for some reason, and I happened to be there, and we ended up talking. And he was saying, you don't want perfect pitch. You want rock and roll ears. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ooh, that's really good. And I loved that. And I think about that all the time, because if you're looking for perfect, you're going to miss most of the shit that is last isn't fucking perfect. Lead us out. Tell us what you're up to, where people could find you, anything you want to promote, plug, anything. I am. I'm currently doing a lot of different things. So I'm doing Be Well. I'm doing some production, some mixing, some... I'm doing a lot more like just vocal tracking with people. And I'm doing a lot of like pre-production type things. And I'm kind of trying to only have like a handful of records that I'm responsible for everything on. And that's more kind of when I am fully producing records, I want to be able to pour everything into it. And I just can't do that 10 or 12 times a year. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm loving writing and performing and traveling and doing things like that. So hopefully post COVID... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who fucking knows, right? When this shit is going to be back. But I'm actually kind of on Instagram at my Salad Day studio and I read every message and respond to everybody. So, I mean, anybody that hits me up, producers, bands, whatever, like I love chatting with cool people. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us on the Noise Careers podcast today. Just so you know, we have a lot more episodes already taped in coming up. I'm going to be doing a ton of these through the end of 2020. So please get subscribed on your favorite podcast app as well. You get charged nothing. There's no commercials for this. So the best thing you can do is share it and tell a friend who may enjoy it as well. Go check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com dash muse formation where I'm teaching musicians how to go from zero to 10,000 fans and a ton of wisdom on songwriting and record production. Thanks so much for listening.